It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, Is God Really Omnipotent? Coming up in this episode... The Bible is ancient, and as such, it has endured uncountable attacks on its harmony and authenticity. For instance, if God is almighty, all-seeing, and all-knowing, why does the Bible say there are things he can't do? And if he is so wise and powerful, why doesn't he treat everyone the same way? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? Matthew 19, 25 and 26. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The Bible is a really big book. It was written by about 40 people spanning a period of over 1,500 years and in three different languages. Just these facts alone create a likelihood of its writings being misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misrepresented. Claims that the Bible is a widely contradictory book are numerous and really easy to find. In our contradiction series, we continue to look at these questions and attempt to answer them one by one. Our process is to consider the immediate context of the scriptures in question and the larger context of the Bible itself. We examine the original meanings of the words involved and attempt to assign the meaning that best fits the scriptural point being made. Solving apparent biblical contradictions is possible. We just need to see the Bible as God would have us see it. Since this episode is part of our contradiction series, let's look at our first apparent contradiction. Is God really omnipotent? Julie, can you define omnipotent for us? Well, here's a quote from Wikipedia. Omnipotence is the quality of having unlimited power. Monotheistic religions generally attribute omnipotence only to the deity of their faith. In the monotheistic religious philosophy of Abrahamic religions, Omnipotence is often listed as one of the deity's characteristics, along with omniscience, that's all-knowing, omnipresence, present everywhere at all times, and omnibenevolence, that's perfect or unlimited goodness. The presence of all of these properties in a single entity has given rise to considerable theological debate, prominently including the problem of evil, the question of why such a deity would permit the existence of evil. It is accepted in philosophy and science, that omnipotence can never be effectively understood, end quote. We have talked about God permitting evil for a limited period of time in several episodes, such as number 1234. Why does God let the innocent suffer? Search by episode number at ChristianQuestions.com or the Christian Questions app. And we're going to talk about whether or not God has unlimited power in a minute. But before we get to that, do you think that he's omnipresent? meaning he's everywhere at all times, he's inside every person, inside Satan, is he in every blade of grass? Isn't that why he sends messengers, so he doesn't have to be everywhere? <laughs> well, and, and I think, Jonathan, I think that really kind of sums it up. God, there is no necessity for him to be everywhere. He has, he has an understanding that goes 
in all directions and in all times and in all places. But he is not literally everywhere. He is not with the ink in my pen. It's just not the way it is. It doesn't have to be. God, as we will see, is far greater than that. So let's look at this. One of the examples of God's ultimate power. Let's let's take a look at God being omnipotent, omnipotent, having ultimate power. He proclaims that he is the God of ultimate power to Abram. So this is Abram, Abraham, before his name was changed, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Well, this word translated almighty is pronounced Shaddai, which means Almighty, Most Powerful, and The Almighty. So we have this great sense of God telling Abram, I am God Almighty, Omnipotent, All-Powerful. So he gives Abram a sense of who he is by describing him himself in this way. By this ultimate power, he changes Abram's name and gives Abram a son in a physically impossible way. Because remember, Abram was 99 years old at this point. His wife, Sarah, was, I think, 90. And he said, you're going to have a promised son. They're both too old to have children, but God makes it so they do have that son, Isaac, anyway. So God's mighty power, the way he introduces himself to Abram, is exhibited in this birth of Isaac, this son. So we've got that God showing himself as almighty. Now... We're going to fast forward, and God's going to show us another dimension of his being the God of ultimate power. We're going to fast forward to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. They've grown to this massive nation. They're captive in Egypt, and now millions of them are about to be released. And here is how God adds to that. Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 to 4. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Now remember the first word we talked about, Almighty, was Shaddai. Now the second word, which is translated Lord, is pronounced Yehovah, as we would say, Jehovah, which means the self-existent or eternal one. And this is a really important text to understand in Hebrew. You know, people often write to us at ChristianQuestions.com and ask, who made God? And here God tells us he is the self-existent, eternal one. So he was without beginning and doesn't require any external means to be sustained. So that's a big, big revelation when God says, this is who I am. I am the self-existent one because I'm going to free you from a slavery that looks completely impossible. And here, here's what we begin to understand. God was recognized by his fallen human creation as almighty at the very beginning, as in the case with Abram, even though he has so many other aspects to him. As he introduced himself as the self-existing one here in Exodus, God began to reveal other aspects of who he is. And here's what we find. The names of God, the names that he is called by, help us to see the complexity of his nature and his power. His names reveal just how his omnipotence works. There's lots of names for God, in, especially in the Old Testament. Let's just, Jonathan, let's just look at two examples of God's names. El Elyon. El means the Almighty, and Elyon is 
superlative. The it magnifies the L, like saying the strongest strong one. It expresses the extreme sovereignty and majesty of God and His highest preeminence. Now let's combine both of the words. L and Elion is translated as God Most High, as in Genesis fourteen verse eighteen. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, the next word we'll consider is Adonai, which means my Lord, spoken in place of Yahweh in a Jewish display of reverence. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord, Adonai, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. In English, we read God or Lord, but that really conceals the various names of God in the original Hebrew that each define a little more about who he is and how he operates. So his being comprehensively almighty gets further focused with clarity and detail. In this week's corresponding CQ Rewind show notes on our website and our app, we're going to be adding bonus material about the study of the names of Jehovah God. It's incredible to see what he has revealed if we just dig a little deeper. Some of us these words, these Hebrew words might be familiar, and that's because there's this popular contemporary Christian song called El Shaddai. Now, several people have sung it. I'm most familiar with the Amy Grant version, and the lyrics include the Hebrew El Shaddai Eleyana Adonai. Translated into English, that means God Almighty, God Most High, please my Lord, or we beseech thee. So you have that beautiful song and we've got these first three words that we chose to describe the character of God. We're asking the question, is God omnipotent? You can't answer the question until you understand the God. You can't under, uh, understand him until you see his names and the comprehensiveness and how they define his ultimate power. Now for our next contradiction. So what do you have for us, Julie? Okay, so was God pleased or displeased with his creation? We start with Genesis 131. God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. However, just a few chapters later in Genesis 6, 5 and 6, it says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Here's the problem. How can God be displeased so quickly, I might add, with his own creation, if he's all-knowing, and he never changes his mind. So since he made mankind with his own power, how could it displease him? Ah, a problem, you say. <laughs> well, let's, let's think about this for a moment, okay? The thing is, that first scripture, that Genesis 131 scripture, God's joy in his creation did not change. It said, the scripture said that he saw that it was very good. And that doesn't change. What changed was having Satan misuse his authority, having Adam disobeying him, and having some of God's own angels following Satan's lead. God still knew his creation was very good, as he said. He still knew it. He still had that appreciation and that love for it. However, his sorrow and his grief were at the ugliness and widespread contamination of sin. We know God knew ahead of time that Satan would do that because we are assured that that remedy of Jesus was already in place. Revelation 13, 8 tells us about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So he did have that um, omnipotence. And the, the key is that his displeasure was within the context 
of the unveiling of his plan. His displeasure is at the sin, is at the brokenness, is at the darkness and the evil. His displeasure wasn't with his creation overall because his plan would follow through on that very good. So God evidenced his unchanged attitude about his very good creation going a little bit further uh, in, in history when we get to Noah in choosing Noah to carry on the human family. Remember Noah and the Ark and the Great Flood. This was a small step toward the fulfillment of God's own prophecy. See, God made a prophecy right at the very beginning to show us how his creation actually was very good, even though sin had entered. This was the prophecy he made speaking to Satan in Satan's sentencing, if you will. Genesis three fifteen. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God saw the evil, proclaimed the consequences, but with God things take time. And so we can see that this was not a contradiction at all, because the very good creation would go on to, in the future, honor and praise God for all of eternity. But in the meantime, there's that displeasure with those things that are happening that are sinful. Why? Because they are out of harmony with God's ultimate picture, but are a necessary experience for all of us. So, okay, that, make, that makes sense, because the principle exists that he's constantly disappointed in sin. It wasn't that he was disappointed with the... Well, he's disappointed in the sin of the people, not the, his creation right, of the people. Right, exactly. Okay, got it. No contradiction. So, Jonathan... As we look to clarify contradictions, what do we have? God's pleasure and displeasure in his human creation is not a contradiction within God's character and power. It does not show weakness or inability. Rather, it shows compassion and responsiveness. Because God is omnipotent, his expressions of anger, displeasure, and grief accentuate the grandness of his plan. All of creation needs to experience God's displeasure. It is a teaching tool, not a flaw. So God's displeasure is there to teach us. So it is far from being a contradiction. It actually enhances who God is. So as we begin to understand God's omnipotence, we can see an absolute need for reverence as our foundation. What about things the Bible says that God can't do? Do these things contradict God's omnipotence? When the finite mind of humanity seeks to understand and judge spiritual things beyond our physical realm, we need to put on the brakes. Diminishing our all-powerful creator by saying God can't, therefore he's not omnipotent, is nothing more than an immature accusation made without context and scriptural reason. So that's a big statement that I'm making, and but we're going to stand by that as we open the scriptures and look at this more fully. But someone might ask philosophical questions like, is God bound by his own rules of logic? Can God sit in a chair that doesn't exist? I've got one. I got one. Can God create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? <laughs> yes, exactly. Questions like this. Well, Julie, let's go on to our next apparent contradiction. Okay, so nothing is impossible with God, except for iron chariots? 
In Jeremiah 32, 26 to 27, Jeremiah is going to buy a piece of land while the whole region was under Chaldean control. And it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Clearly, this is a rhetorical question. He previously asked it of Abraham's wife, Sarah, in Genesis 18, 14. But in Judges 1, 18 to 19, suddenly it seems as though God is unable to deliver his people. It says, And Judah took Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had iron chariots. So was God Almighty really not able to overcome the iron chariots of the enemy? Did God's power fail? Nothing is further from the truth. Now, let's put the context in place. The first chapter of Judges was written shortly after Israel's great leader Joshua died. Under Joshua, their victories against their enemies were complete as God was with them. All right, so this fear of iron chariots that was brought out in Judges that, Julia, you read Judges 1, 18 and 19, this fear of iron chariots was not new to the men of Israel. Joshua himself had to deal with such a fear previous to this. Let's look at Joshua chapter 17, verses 16 through 18. Then the sons of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron both those who are in Bashan and its town, and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Okay, so in Joshua 17, they're supposed to be expanding the lands, and some of the, the men are saying, well, wait, they've got iron chariots. We don't want to go there. You know, it's kind of like, ooh, this is too big for us. So the possession of these iron chariots made the men of Israel cower. They just cowered. They were afraid. Joshua, though, gives them an answer in typical Joshua fashion. And we're in Joshua 17. Jonathan, let's read verses 17 and 18. Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it, and its farthest borders it shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and through, though they are very strong. So, Rick and Julie, Joshua was saying to his army, God is with you. You can do this. And in the very next verse, God had the victory through Joshua. And that's Joshua 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. So, the chariots of iron were defeated. So these iron chariots were a new technology, we might say, that Israel didn't have. It sounds like they had more faith in Joshua than they did in God. So when Joshua said they would overcome it, they did. But when he was no longer there, they're fearful and were defeated from a lack of faith. It's not that God couldn't. It sounds like it's that the people wouldn't. Well, faith and victory often go hand in hand. Great faith brings great victory. The point was God was with them. And that's always the point. And when we look at God's omnipotence working with his chosen people, we can see his power is readily available when great faith exists, just like you said, Jonathan. So, you know, you, you look at this circumstance about not being able to drive out the inhabitants because of iron chariots. It wasn't because of God. It was because of them. So clarifying contradictions, Jonathan, what do we have? 
God's almighty power is never cut short, though the weakness of man will make excuses to give that impression. We must always reverence God's power and realize how lofty it is in relation to our tiny and weak human perspective. So, Rick, what do you think about that? The the, the rocks that, you know, can he make a rock that you can't lift and a chair that he's not sitting on? What do you, what do you think about that? No, absolutely not. God cannot make a rock that he can't lift and a chair that's too big or too small for him to sit in or whatever it is that you said, I don't remember. Because when we look at the omnipotence of God, we look at this ultimate almighty power in the context. Remember, we we're talking about God's names. It's in the context of God's names. So those things are foolish little ditties that we like to bring up to say, aha, I gotcha. God is far bigger than that. He can't do something that's beyond his own capacity to manage. It's, it's that simple. And, and so that, that brings us to a whole different aspect of this, this, this conversation. Let's briefly examine what God's omnipotence won't do. Because when you're saying, well, this is something he can't do. Aha, we got you. Well, hang on. You know, let's look at what God's omnipotence won't do and therefore what it can do. And what we're going to find is when you find something it won't do, you open up something that it can and does do. God cannot have his word ever go unfulfilled. This means he can and will always care for his creation. How do we know? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Well, Rick and Julie, this proves how purposeful God is. He's not arbitrary. There's a reason for every minutia and detail. It's beyond human understanding. And, and when we look at this particular verse, especially verse 11 in Isaiah 55, my word will accomplish what I desire and it will not go forth without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. In other words, if I've said it, it's as good as done. Now, it may take, in God's plan, thousands of years, but if he said it, it's done. That is omnipotence. That is almighty power, because his word never, ever goes unrecognized. Okay, so God cannot have his word ever go unfulfilled. How about this? God cannot lie, which means he absolutely represents the highest standard of trustworthiness. Hebrews chapter 6, let's just do verses 13 and 18. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Not only does this say he can't lie, but he can't break an oath. This is why it says we can have the hope set before us. We couldn't have a true hope if we couldn't rely on the one making the promises. And see, so when you look at omnipotence 
And a lot of times we try to look at it and try to make it into this, this, this fantastical thing. To, and, and we have these philosophical debates about it. Think about omnipotence, about all power, being in someone who can't lie, being in someone whose word will always be fulfilled. That gives you a sense of, wow, that really is all-powerful, isn't it? Well, let's go a little further. And this one, talk, those are good. Listen to this. God cannot be unfaithful, which means he is, he, he is and always will be worthy of our faith and reverence. Let's look at Romans chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Isn't it interesting that what God cannot do actually makes his power greater? It does. It does. It does. He, you can't undo his faithfulness. There is nothing in, in the universe that could undo the faithfulness of God. That's what we're being shown here. Let God be found true, and it will ultimately happen. One more verse on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Adding to that list of things God cannot do, which in turn makes him even more worthy of our trust and praise, James 1.13 says he can't be tempted. 2 Timothy 2.13 says he cannot deny who he is. So that means he can't act contrary to his holy character. And Isaiah 40, 28 says he cannot grow tired or weary. Yes. So these aren't limitations. It just shows he's not, uh, uh, Jonathan, you called him, he's not arbitrary, you said earlier. Uh, that's, you know, based on your own discretion where it might be something completely random. But another word comes into my head. He's not capricious. Capricious means impulsive and unpredictable, determined by chance, impulse or whim. That's not our God. So when you realize that the things that God can't do make him more and more the picture of all-powerful, you realize, thank God he is who he is. And again, going back to his names helps us to understand what he's made of, who he is, what his objectives are. And it's always, always goodness, always. God's omnipotence is obvious. I think hopefully you're, you're beginning to see that as we go through this. And yet it's hidden within the context of the Bible as a whole. You're not going to see God's omnipotence in one little piece here or there or there. But when you look at the Bible as a whole, you see it. However, in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36, the Apostle Paul is, he, he's in this place in his mind where he is just expounding the depths and the heights and the breadths of the character of God. Listen to this. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You know, and when you look at that scripture, folks, this is the kind of scripture that you want to put on your refrigerator. You want to have this in front of your eyes, because when you realize the challenges you have in life, 
you want to look at the all-powerful, omnipotent character of God and say, oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God, it is incomprehensible, and I can have confidence in that all-powerful being. So, Jonathan, clarifying contradictions, let's wrap this piece up. Our understanding of God's almighty power is not to be treated like a child's game. The fact is, no one wants a God who is bursting at the seams with unlimited and unrestrained power. That's dangerous. We all would rather have a God whose unlimited power is always expressed within the confines of a clearly defined character built upon justice, wisdom, and love. And as you go through the scriptures, what you find is the character of God is defined by justice, wisdom, and love. And then it's all expressed through this omnipotent power. No contradictions here, just real goodness. So knowing what we know now, acknowledging the omnipotence omnipotence of God is not at all scary. Instead, it is deeply reassuring. So if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, why does the Bible show us that he favors some and not all? The idea of favoritism from an all-wise and benevolent God can absolutely come across as a dramatic contradiction. The wisdom and power we've already uncovered seem to make the need or even the desire on God's part to have favorites foolish. Once again, we need to put all of our questions into the larger context of biblical truth. So we're going to go in a slightly different direction here, and we're going to look at this idea of of favoritism. Well, both Old and New Testaments clearly speak of God as impartial. 2 Chronicles 19.7 Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. And the New Testament, Acts 10.34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Okay, God's not one to show partiality, but is that true all the time or is it a contradiction? Is God partial or impartial? Does he play favorites? Here's the problem. God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, but he rejected Cain's. That showed partiality of one over the other from the very start. Genesis 4, 2 to 5 says, Abel was a keeper of flocks, Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. God approved Abel's offering of animals, but not the fruit from Cain. How was Cain supposed to know? So here he gave his best and got rejected. Some might say God favored Abel. So you're looking at that saying, okay, contradiction, God's showing partiality. And this is not like way later in history. This is very, very early in human history. Well, there's a simple, clear, scriptural solution for this. And the word is, my favorite word, context. God gave Cain opportunity. He gave him opportunity to act in accordance with God's own will. Cain did not. We know this because the very next verses, and and folks, before we read those next verses, let me just pause. 
when you see something in Scripture and you say, oh, that sounds like a big contradiction, make sure you look at the context. Make sure you look at the whole story. you got to go back. you got to go forward. Put it in order, because most of the time, it's just solved right there. For instance, here, Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, is the answer to the fact that there is no partiality being shown here. Let's, let's look at that. Go ahead, Jonathan. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So we've got this answer from God, and he's saying to Cain, Hey, I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing. Cool your jets, okay? You don't need to be angry. There's a way to solve this issue. Here's what you need to do. And he showed him what he needed to do, and he warned him, if you don't follow the righteous way that I'm showing you, there will be really bad consequences for you from within you. What you're saying is Cain had the opportunity to learn and change, but he didn't want to. Exactly. God didn't favor Abel. He wanted an animal sacrifice. And once Cain had the information to try again, he blatantly rejected it. He should have just asked Abel, hey, what did you do? What was right in pleasing God? Or ask to have one of Abel's perfect lambs as an offering and just pay him back later. Well, the entire point of animal sacrifices was to foreshadow or typify Jesus. In the garden, Adam and Eve were clothed with the skin of an animal. God put that in place to cover them, just like the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers us. God was looking for the symbol of an animal sacrifice, but Cain did not abide by it. He wanted to do it his way, so he got angry and killed his brother Abel. And, you know, when we look at the Scriptures and we come up with a, quote, contradiction of Scripture, unquote, oftentimes, folks, I'm going to suggest that we're trying to do it our way. We're trying to do it our way. We're being a little bit bullheaded. The way Cain was being bullheaded and saying, I want to sacrifice the things that I, I, I grew because they're the things I grew. That's not what God wanted. He gave him the opportunity by saying, if you do what's right, he, said, he would have known. If you do what's right, the answer is right there. So there's a principle here. There's a principle that goes throughout all of the scriptures. And the principle of being favored by God is acting righteously. And this principle is verified throughout Scripture and in the New Testament as well. Let's take a look at that in Romans chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God." So the principle is to act righteously wherever it is you come from. And let me define that further, to act with godly righteousness. Not my own version of righteousness. This is what I think is right, so therefore this is what I'm going to do. But this is what God has said is right, so therefore that is what I'm going to do. That principle exists in all of God's dealings with all of humanity for all of time. Let's look at another example. What's the next problem, Julie? Mm -hmm. Okay, so it appears that God showed prejudice against Esau and hated him even before he was born, which demonstrates that God obviously does show partiality. From this, we're going to go to Romans 9, 10 to 13. It says, there was Rebecca also when she conceived twins 
For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So reading that scripture, Julie, what you're saying is, it, it says that God told Rebekah that the older is going to serve the younger, and Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Already predetermined which of the twins would be the par- show partiality. Okay. Two, towards. And, and, you know, when you read that scripture and you stop there and you put it in that context, I could see where you'd say, yeah, that doesn't sound right. So let's examine it. Because it is right if you see it through the eyes that God would want us to see it through. And how do we do that? <laughs> we do, you know what we do, Jonathan? We establish... Context. That's right. That's right. <laughs> where... So the question we have to ask ourselves is, where are the above scriptures, the Old Testament quotes, verses, where are they quoted from? Well, it turns out they're quoted from two different places. So let's look at the two quotes that are mentioned in, he, in Romans chapter 9, specifically in verse 12, the older will serve the younger, and then Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The first quote is from Genesis 25, 22 to 23, and it's God revealing the destiny of Rebekah's unborn twins. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This was God's answer to Rebecca. And, and imagine being pregnant. Now, first of all, being pregnant is a, is a major, major undertaking in any woman's life. Let's get that straight. But being pregnant with twins is twice the major undertaking in any woman's life. And what is, say, is being said here is that the, they, there was a lot of commotion within the womb with these twins. And God said they represent two nations, and the, the older is going to serve the younger. He's prophetically looking at what's going to happen. Notice there's no hate there. There's just a statement of what's going to happen. The next quote that was brought up in Romans chapter 9, verse 12 about Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The next quote is from Malachi, and it's a look back on the ancestry of Esau. So the first quote came from Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. This next quote is from Malachi, a look back, and it comes from the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi 1, verses 2 and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals. In Hebrews 12, 15, 17, this might help, we're told that Esau was continually bitter. I think it says in some translations he had the root of bitterness against his brother for stealing his blessing, and Esau was unwilling to repent. He's called immoral and godless. Yeah, and he's not just called that. He's used it as as an example of what not to do, how not to be. And so God is never pleased with that kind of immoral behavior. And you can see that in the Malachi scripture, it's looking back on Esau's descendants and saying that those lands were ended up ended up being desolate. So the solution for the question of, aha, God shows partiality because the scripture says that when they were in the womb, the older will serve the younger, and Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Here's the solution. Careful reading. 
Let me pause there for a second and absorb that. Careful reading of the scriptures reveals that God did not hate Esau before birth. The first Old Testament quote showed the destiny before Esau and Jacob were born, and that destiny showed them becoming two very great and powerful nations. And the second scripture from Malachi shows the results of what happened to Esau because he was a bitter, angry man many generations later. And I'm not sure if that word hate, hated, he hated, isn't that like a loved less? It's not a, you know, destroy him type of word. Um, but in looking closer, the scriptures I brought you with Cain and Esau, I don't think they have anything to do with God showing favoritism now that you, like you said, you look at the context. But let's go to the New Testament, because in Romans, it does sound like God picks and chooses who receives his favor, favor and who receives his disfavor. Some would say this next scripture is proof that God is not a God of equality. Romans 9, 14, 18 says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then does it not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So Rick and Jonathan, this sounds like God is manipulating people to set up circumstances the way he wants. And that would violate or at least interfere with our free will. I know we've covered this in episode 1208. Do we really have free will? But what say you? And Rick, how do you harden someone like Pharaoh? I mean, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? You know, I know this is a question for which many Christians would like an answer. You know, when when you look at things like that, hardening Pharaoh's heart, and, and you look at these scriptures in Romans, and Julie, I, I'm, I'm, I'll give you credit. You look at these scriptures, and it's like, yeah, see? God's showing partiality. He's showing favoritism. And it looks like manipulation. Actually, it is not manipulation. It is recognition. And that's the thing to understand. When God hardens, hardened Pharaoh's heart, he recognized his heart, he centralized his heart, and he encouraged Pharaoh, go ahead, follow your heart. You think you're all big and powerful, and you want to fight against me, God Almighty, and incidentally, each of these ten plagues is against some God that you worship, but go ahead, go ahead, be yourself, just be yourself. And so God provoked Pharaoh by showing him true righteousness. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened because he saw something that he thought he should be more powerful than. So he hardened his heart by provoking him, by showing him, look, you're not the biggest fish in this pond. Whether you you like it or not, you're just not it. And so it was the hardening of the heart, not by magically touching him and making him angry, but it was by giving him the ability to recognize himself, recognize that God was powerful, and to just go after him and fight and become insistent, and become belligerent, and eventually die as a result. That's really what it boiled down to. His natural tendencies manifested themselves, and yes. God was able to use that and provoke him. Yes, absolutely. So I found the scripture, Matthew five forty-five in the Phillips translation. It sounds like we start out with a baseline for everyone. It says this, For he, God, makes the sun rise upon evil men as well as good. He sends his rain upon honest and dishonest men alike. So it sounds like everyone has an evil, even playing field. They do. And that's an important perspective. And that was laid out in the Cain and Abel scenario right at the beginning. So what we're going to see is God's mercy 
is specifically targeted. Sure, but wait, specifically targeted sounds like just another way of saying God has favorites. How does that work in practicality? Okay, well, let's take a look at how God's favoritism, and yes, here, newsflash, God does have favorites. <gasps> let's see how it works, okay? Let's look at Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 13, verses 13 and 14, God is prophesying uh, through Jeremiah about Israel. Then say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. I will dash them against each other, both the fathers and the sons together, declares the Lord. I will not show pity, nor be sorry, nor have compassion, so as not to destroy them. This is how God treats his favorites, his chosen people? This doesn't sound like much favoring is going on. Well, God has high standards for his people. He expects them to be in harmony with him. And when they are not, there are consequences. And for us as Christians, hopefully the consequences will lead to lessons learned. Yeah, hopefully you're right. And hopefully for Israel, it was, you know, leading to lessons learned. And we saw the... the, the the, the principle laid out with Cain and Abel and the following of righteousness, godly righteousness and godly righteousness only. I'll show you how. Do it this way. You keep my favor. You don't. You're out of my favor. And they were treated just like any other nation as a result of that. What we're saying is God does show partiality. He does favor certain groups and even individuals like Abraham, but having his favor comes with accountability. So, how do we get into his favor? You do what's right in God's eyes. And that's not the whole story. Okay, so folks, you have to stay with us for the next segment because the reason for favor is to not have favor. Okay, we're, I'm just going to put that out there now and we're going to go into that in the next se segment. God is impartial. We are sticking by that. And yet we're saying he favors some. Why? Well, you stay in God's favor by following God's righteousness. It's that clear. It's that simple. And in the Old Testament, it was following the Jewish law because that was the way to God, the only way. Jonathan, clarifying contradictions, what do we have? Our scriptural understanding of being in God's favor is not like being given a get-out-of-jail-free card. On the contrary, it is like possessing an I am held to a strict accountability to higher standards card. While God has chosen who he will favor in different ages, he has never been arbitrary with those choices, and they are all for ultimately good reasons. Ultimately good reasons that are very profound, as we will shortly see. So God's favor is not free. It's not easy, and it isn't necessarily even comfortable. Yet, his favor is the best thing we could ever hope for. It sure seems like God has his own set of rules when it comes to whom he favors. Is this even fair? All right, well, think about it. There could be no fairer way to handle our sinful race of humanity than this. God is above us. His intellect, his power, his experience, his compassion, and his plan are all overwhelmingly beyond our reach. Rather than whining about what we feel, let's instead focus on the scriptures and on what is real. Because the fact of the matter is, we have a very 
worthy God. We touched on that previously with a Roman scripture. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 145, 8 to 13. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Jonathan, you read, the Lord is good to all. Is that really true? Does this refer to that baseline of basic blessings everyone gets just by being born on this earth? It, it does. And what we will see is that when God saw his creation that it was very good, this is what that is pointing to. It's a bigger picture, and we are walking towards that bigger picture right now as we talk about favoritism and partiality. So, simply stated, God in all of his favoritism sees far beyond what we can see. Let's look at Proverbs 21, verses 2 and 3. Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. So, Rick and Julie, God goes to the inner man, the heart. It's more than looking good. It's about being good. And we have to understand that is a basic principle of gaining partiality with God, gaining favoritism with God, is to be good in his sight. Now look, nothing we can do ever will measure up, but we have to put our heart in the right place. And God understands, just like a little child. A little child tries so hard to do something and fails miserably, but you look at that child and you praise them to the ends of the earth because the effort was there. That's the way God sees us. We need to have that effort towards him. So what we want to understand is God's favor is also just. It's, it's not just far beyond what we can see and, and based on the heart, but it's just. Those in favor must always maintain their focus on godly righteousness or lose that which they are privileged to have. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 23, 37 to 39. And the context of this is this is the end of Jesus' ministry. And he is talking to the Pharisees, and they have, they have been stepping in, in front of the gospel from the very beginning. And Jesus has, has worked and worked and worked, and they've, they've, they've disregarded him, and they're trying to kill him, and, and, and it's over. They are about to lose their favor as the nation of Israel. And, and so Israel's about to be cast off, and this is part of the fulfilling of God's plan. Here's what Jesus says to them, Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, now, as harsh as this judgment is, your house is left desolate. Notice there's a door left open. For, for I will say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There's this opportunity later that's left open, even for those who rejected Jesus. And these verses in Matthew describing the casting off of Israel as a nation from God's favor, this doesn't mean that every single Jew was shunned from being a follower of Christ. 
but the nation was put aside from being the sole source of the call of Christ. So the favor that was given to Israel had an ending point because they were unwilling to live up to that favor. Favor isn't forever unless you stay in a favored state. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. And to be in a favored state is to stay within the righteousness of God's way, not my way. So let's follow what happened here. Once this door of favor was closed due to unfaithfulness, God's favor just doesn't stop. It finds an opening of faith elsewhere. And in this case, that favor went to Gentiles. Those who were out of favor can always find favor if they truly seek what? Godly righteousness. Well, let's talk about the first Gentile convert to Christianity. To refresh your memory on all the amazing details, listen to episode 866 and 870. Why Cornelius? Why a soldier? Well, Julie, tell us briefly about Cornelius. Okay, he was a Gentile Roman centurion. He was a devout and generous man. He constantly prayed to God, and you can read about him in Acts 10. But this was at a time when God was only directly working with favoring the Jewish nation. Lo and behold, Cornelius is praying. He sees an angel of God in a vision who told him that his prayers all this time were being accumulated by God, waiting for this exact time. Now, that's really cool. (laughs) The angel tells him to go find the apostle Peter, so he sends out his men to do so. The same day Peter's praying, and he receives a vision about unclean animals, He learns that these represented the Gentiles with the instruction that says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. While Peter is considering what he saw, Cornelius's men show up and they all travel back together to Cornelius. Let's pick up the account in Acts 10, 30 to 35. Cornelius said, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour and behold, A man stood before me in shining garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before the Lord. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So let's pause there for a moment, because this is Cornelius excitedly welcoming the Apostle Peter and those that came with him. He is excited. He's saying, God is with you, and I just want to listen to what you say to me, because I have been seeking God, seems like, forever. And, you know, you, you have this beautiful picture set up. And remember, we're talking about God's partiality. And remember that the nation of Israel lost that exclusive right to be the place where the called out ones came from. And God did not stop being, uh, stop looking for, for chosen ones. He looked now to Gentiles. As somebody who come from a completely pagan background, Cornelius, this Roman centurion, is there and he is just waiting with bated breath to hear what the Apostle Peter says. Jonathan, let's go to verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And that, folks, is what we call the mic drop moment, because Peter says and sums up 
all of what God is doing. Does he show favoritism? Yes. To whom? To those who seek him out in godly righteousness. And Peter is expressing that, that here, here it is. This is what we have. So this favoritism is because we are trying hard to find God. It's not, he's not saying, well, I like that family and not that family, and they're both exactly equal in their pagan beliefs. No, no, it is the favoritism goes toward those who look up, who want to worship him. He will bless those who seek him. It's really simple. What great partiality, I might add. What wonderful partiality there. Cornelius was a Gentile whose focused faith was honored by God even when he was outside of a favored condition. Julie, you, you, you gave us a really good explanation of, of the buildup to this moment. When the right time came, he was then called to follow Jesus, and he followed, as well as his whole household. So God's partiality, we've seen it put in place. We've seen it in action. Yes, God does have those that he chooses over others. We've discussed why. Now let's take it to the next larger step. Why does he choose some and not others at this point? We know that it has to do with seeking God. But God's partiality through these ages of sin ultimately brings impartiality throughout all of eternity. This is the equation that makes it all make sense. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Okay, let, let's pause right there. Notice the dramatic change. Now you have to find God, you have to go look. You have to, you have to sort through, you have to find the right sources, you got to go to the scriptures, they're hard to understand. Then the prophecy says that the mountain of the house of, Lord, of the house of the Lord, the government, mountains often uh, picture governments in Scripture, is going to be the chief of the mountains, meaning it's easy to find. Look, it's that big, massive thing right up there. You can't miss it. It will be raised above the hills. And what does it say? All nations will stream to it. There's no mystery here. There's absolutely no mystery, which means there's no partiality. Listen to the next piece, verses 3, uh, actually verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 2. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All of these people looking to honor and, and, and serve God. They're, they're streaming to him. The, the masses and masses of people are coming. How does God respond to that? Verse 4. And he will judge between the nations and will re render decisions from many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. No partiality. All serving God under that one government through Christ and, his, and the chosen ones. And that's why there's partiality now, to set up so this can actually work in the future. So God's partiality, God's favoritism, actually produces impartiality for every man, woman, and child who ever lived. That's what Isaiah chapter 2 was telling us. Thank God he has partiality now in these days. Jonathan, clarifying contradictions, let's wrap this up. Embracing the omnipotence of God 
helps us understand that his favoritism is for the ultimate blessing of all. These things that some consider to be biblical contradictions can now see actually they can tell a story of biblical harmony. This is not merely a harmonious look at the past. It is a harmonious glimpse into the future. Let's sum up our two main questions. Is God omnipotent? Yes, he is. But we have to define his omnipotence in a way that says God's omnipotence, his incredible almighty power is constrained by his almighty character of justice, wisdom, and love. Does God show favoritism? He does to those who seek after him now, and it's difficult now. But in the future, it won't have that same level of difficulty because of the ransom of Jesus. So it all comes out so that the favoritism he shows is so everyone will be his favorites. So his creation, remember God looked at his creation and said it was very good? There you have it. The big circle, you've come to the end and you go back to the beginning. It's very good. This was all in God's plan right from the start. Folks, this is a really important perspective, understanding the power of God and how God chooses people so that all can be blessed. There's so much to learn here. He is omnipotent and he has no favorites because his world, his creation, we are very good and will be very good in his sight. Think about it. Folks, listen, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, does God really require human sacrifices? Again, revisiting our Contradiction series, and we'll talk to you about that next week. 